Hopheads. I'm Justin Crosley. And I'm Nick Ziegler. And this is the Hop and Brew School podcast. Once again, back in the studio and with us, I'm excited about this, once again, we've got Pat Jensen, the technical manager at Yakima Chief Hops. And also, I got it right this time, Tommy Yancone, the technical brewer. How's it going? Yeah. He How are you guys the, doing? He makes the good stuff. I do like Yank corn, though. That's a, that's a, that's a, <laughs> for, for when we get a cereal masher, dude. How about I just change it every time Tommy's in the studio? <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. And no one will ever know who he really is. Tommy Yank corn, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. I want Tommy's job, though. I think being the technical brewer at Yakima Chief Hops is a pretty cool gig, man. Yeah, I'm uh, pretty excited about it. It's been great so far. Yeah, you should be. That's During nice selection, game. though, how many thousand? Or how many? Uh, I think I got up to 1130. 11, 11, sorry, 1,130 lots of different hops coming in you to rub. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's last, right. Last that's couple days. had all the allergic reactions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so every dream job has its pitfalls. Indeed. Well, today on the Hop and Brew School podcast, we're going to be talking about hop combos. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And the point of this podcast and everything we do is to connect the world's finest brewers and home brewers with more knowledge about hops so that we can all drink better beer. Keep that in mind. It's always our goal. Uh, so in the last couple of episodes, we, we discussed uh, hop chemistry and getting to know some of the compounds that are, that are found in hops. And today, we're going to use some of that knowledge uh, to figure out how to put it into practice, right? That's the idea. So um, we're basically going to go through, again, just to refresh your memory, what the, sort of the compound classes and some examples of those are the key drivers of, of aroma and flavor in hops. And then um, look at how they interact. And then later on, give you a bunch of hop combinations that might work. And so we're going to list up the hops that have those in high proportions, um, as well as just high raw volume, which is actually something to to consider. Um, So the difference between the proportion. So if you might have like, you know, 60% of your hop oil is mercine, but if you've only got less than 1%, you're not going to get that much mercine. Whereas if you've got 3% oil you know, you're going to get a lot more. Got it. And some of this research is fairly new that we're sharing here. Uh, Yeah, not even published yet, so. Is that right? Mm Mm-hmm. I love that. See, you found it. Finally, the Brewing Network gets a scoop. <laughs> yeah, we're well. I mean, eventually we're going to start start sharing this stuff on a, on, a, on a broader basis. But really, this is a this is really pretty cutting edge stuff, and this is a, a, a this is a combination of research that has been published as well as stuff that we're discovering about about hop varieties, um, and. Um, a lot of the stuff is, has been well established already in other fields, um, but we're trying to prove it out in hops and beer, and uh, we're going to basically share it with you guys so you can play with it, um, with the caveat that we are absolutely extrapolating um, from what we know, um, and we you know we haven't proven absolutely everything out, but sure. based on experience from brewers and uh, and our data in the lab and what we know about chemistry, this is what we think is, is, is working and going on. Okay. And with all science, I mean, things do change from time to time based on what we know. That is the beauty of it. Okay. All right. Well, why don't we get right into, uh, I guess this is kind of a recap from the, the last episode um, where we need to just recover the compound classes and what it is that they provide. Right. Okay. So um, we're really only going to be focusing on three major ones, and they're the fractions of the oils, uh, or so the oil fractions and stuff that, that we're really interested in for aromatic character okay. in, in hops. Um, because, you know, when you're really driving a beer, that's, that's usually what, what you're after. Um, so we're going to be basically looking at terpenes and terpene alcohols, thiols, and esters. 
Got it. Um, and so brewers are probably familiar with the last one, and they've heard about the first one. Um, that's a, it's, it's very common in, um, in the marijuana industry as well, in the cousin industry, um, mm-hmm. because that's one of the ways you can actually phenotype varieties. You can actually scan, you can, you can scan for those, uh, the terpene compounds, and uh, be able to say, okay, yeah, this is actually X variety, Y variety, or X brand, Y brand. Hashtag corporate Alex, um, right? And uh, so that so these things are are, are are really important drivers. And I think I, we mentioned this last time is that on their own, these compounds aren't necessarily the major contributors to the characteristic of a given variety or brand. Um, they it, they really all work in concert. And so that's where we're going to try to uncover that a little bit today. Okay. So Pat. Terpenes and terpene alcohols. Can you um, kind of refresh us on what they are, what they mean? Well, the terpenes, the major ones are the myrcene, caryophylline, humulene, which are the isoprene units combined together to make either terpenes, monoterpenes, or sesquiterpenes. And the terpene alcohols, our two favorites are linalool and geraniol, with a couple of lesser-known ones that make it in the final beer due to biotransformation or isomerization, and that's citronellol and nerol. Mm-hmm. And so linalool is, has been described as the major character for citrusy. Okay. Uh, geraniol has traditionally been described as flowery or floral. Um, so linalool would be citrusy hop. Geraniol might be floral hop um, in, in any tasting kits you've done. Um, whereas citronellol, yes, you know, we talked about this before, like sort of citronella candles and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and nerol is, um, you know, neroli. It's for the orange oil. Um, and what's interesting is that, that you know, Pat, you, you know, we've talked about this at length, is that geraniol um, actually undergoes some changes throughout the beer. And uh, we think that citronellol and nerol might actually derive from some of the other terpenes. Is that correct? Yeah, generally it's biotransformation of the geraniol. And the geraniol during fermentation can transform into citronellol and nerol. And even linalool at times. Now, is is it actually biotransformation? So, is it enzymatic? Are the yeast taking in the geraniol and actually transforming it, or is it more of a uh, just sort of isomerization, like you said, due to the changing environment in fermentation? That's probably debatable at this point. Mm. People don't yes. know enough at this juncture. But I mean, I would lean probably just in the nature of the difference in the matrix of what happens during fermentation that the ph drop stuff like that can cause these types of isomerizations but you can't rule out the fact that you're in a a yeast environment where they are making a difference in the beer so they too could be playing a role in these isomerizations or actually there's actually the cleavage of what they call the glycosides too where you have enzymes that actually release some compounds from glycosidically bonded linalool and it could possibly the geraniol too but linalool is a little more known to be glycosylically bonded. Yeah, there was some, some work done at Oregon State recently, and I think um, uh, Kaylin Kirkpatrick did some some work on that. Uh, and you can find her presentations and stuff on the uh, CBC websites and the Brewers Association um, from the presentations they gave. Okay. Um, and then also, um, what's interesting about that is that this, there's, there's been a lot of attention played to glycosides in sour beers, and this has been covered before in the Sour Hour and, and I think on Brew Strong briefly as well, where the hypothesis is that uh, there, there are glycosidic formations um, occurring in the boil and then throughout the process. So these aromatic compounds are binding onto sugars, and then they are being released by Britannomyces and some of the other species in, in this, in this uh, co-fermented product to provide or they guess they, they get released, the, the Britannomyces or the other organisms consume the sugars, and then the aromatics get released into the, into the beer to be, to be volatilized, volatilizable again. Okay. Um, speaking with Jay last night, actually, at the, uh, at the Sour Hour podcast, it was interesting to talk to him about how what he's noticed is that a lot of, the, a lot of his favorite characteristics in his beers, um, and Jay, forgive me if I'm, if I'm misquoting you here, um, that there seems to be a high correlation between 
hopping rates and the hops that go into those uh, those boils and those and those beers and the development of complex flavors as they go on. And so he, he was he was saying to pay attention for the uh, was it uh, flower to flower that he did with the uh, the fresh hop beers because mm-hmm. um, I think that's going to be really interesting and you know, I'm excited to see what happens. So w- with these changes that take place and the different combinations, uh, if I'm understanding this right, this is part of why we can't just rely on the data sheet and and what it says the intensity of any of these oils are because they alter at times and present something different in the final beer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's true that what you smell when you actually smell the actual raw hop and when you rub it in your hands and you smell, that's not actually what you're going to get in your final beer. Even even with dry hopping. <laughs> Let's just make beer more difficult, shall we? That, that even the things that we smell might not be the things that we smell. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. That's the same as it is. This is why I respect a great brewers who have such consistency in across all of their styles. You know, when I was a musician, I used to say, like, everybody can write one good song. And I kind of feel that way about beer, too. Everyone can make one good beer. But to do it across all the styles really takes an understanding of these changes, in my opinion, to, to be able to guide your beer exactly to where you want it. Absolutely. And that's, that's kind of the purpose of this episode, is to sort of start to get people thinking about how to look at their ingredients and their process so that they can really start to build up uh, either an experimental approach or a good base of knowledge on what they should be looking for. Okay. And so really experienced brewers, I mean, for example, Vinny, he makes very, very consistent and very wonderful beer. He knows, based on his experience of his process, what the beer is going to smell like giving, given a certain amount of inputs. And that's, I mean, that's, that's just experience. Right. And so if we can, we can sort of, sort of raise that platform for everybody, we're all going to get to drink better beer. And, uh, well, and I'm going to say, because I know we're going to talk about it later, I, I, because, Nick, you, you've, you, you've really put this out in the podcast, and I think it's important. It's not just experience, but it's data collecting. And my guess would be that Vinny has has a lot of data collection at, at Russian River on, on top of his experience. Yeah, he alluded to this last night, um, where he was saying how uh, the amount of data that he's collecting, and and, and you know he, he's a, he's a data hawk as well, which is wonderful. So, yeah, uh, yeah. so one of the another reason I respect him a bunch. But in terms of what you said earlier, like we don't know what we're smelling. I mean, there are known knowns, there are known unknowns, there are unknown unknowns, and there are unknown knowns. Okay. And then when we know <laughs> what we don't know, we really enter the realm of the unknown. Okay. So I just. Uh, that's going to be a Brewing Network t-shirt, I think. You just gave us uh, the, our first uh, quotable quote from the show. Oh, no. It's, I, 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 please don't let my first quotable quote be co- quoting Donald Rumsfeld. That's <laughs> uh, very good. Okay, so that was a, a little summary of the terpenes and terpene alcohols. Yeah, and there, there are way more than that. But at the moment, we're just looking at sort of a top-level stuff, the main, the main drivers. So the next set of compounds, and we mentioned this last time, are the thiols. Okay, and thiols, again, are uh, sulfur-containing compounds and they on their own they're not always tremendously active and also on their well i mean some some of the thioesters for example can can be negative they can give you like sort of cabbagey character or some onion garlic character and all that stuff and so they don't smell very good on their own necessarily um but when they enter into a uh, complex matrix with some of the other compounds like the terpenes and other esters you get some really interesting expressions and it's a uh, it's interesting i think i alluded to this early in the show early earlier in another episode about how thiols typically indicate either ripening fruit fermentation or putrescence and so those are three things that you have to pay attention to as a, as a living organism so the presence of thiols in a an aromatic complex are going to make you pay attention to it, either in a negative way or a positive way. And so, I mean, some of the things that we've looked at, uh, we, we mentioned this before, were um, 3-MH, which is, um, Pat, what's the 
Oh, God, I'm calling you out, aren't, you? Sorry, aren't I? Sorry. Yeah, you told me I didn't have to write it down. <laughs> <laughs> you totally said that. I right. totally did say that. Okay, we'll go with the other one. So, 4MMP uh, and 4MSM, uh, 4MSP, which are the uh, RIBES, Blackcurrant, or are frequently ascribed as Caddy Hop. Can you tell me, if you can't tell me exactly what 3MH is, that's okay, but... What is it we're talking about when we say 3MH or 3MHA? What it so was? that would be 3-methyl... Hexanol. Hexanol is, uh, is 3MH. And those are the, so that's, that's a, it's a way of writing the molecule down, of how you describe it. So it's, that's what I'm getting at. It's it describes a, it's a, a molecule, uh, a molecular structure yeah, it when describes, you say 3MH. Yeah, it describes, it describes the molecular structure of that, of that file. Okay. That's what I needed to know. It's a short term. Okay. So we don't have to say it all the way out. Understood. Okay. Carry on, please. Okay. So in that case, so 3MH... Is um, that's one that gives rhubarb and citrus, 4MMP and 4MSP, so that's a 4-methyl sulfonyl penta something or other. Yeah. Um, I'm so professional here. Uh, ribes. 4-methyl to pentanone. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Capto-methyl yeah. right. pentanone. There we go. So, yeah, there you go. So that's, this is why you're here, Pat, to make me look yeah. stupid. I mean, uh, to correct me when I'm wrong. Um, so, ribes, uh, if you, that's a very British term. Yeah, what uh, are ribes? It's basically um, the smell of blackberry branches. Okay. Which is a little weird. But nice. Exactly. Yeah. But also, in excessive amounts, it smells like tomcat urine. Okay. <laughs> so, no, so, but, so, so think about that. So, blackcurrant uh, uh, so black and um, uh, mulberries, like they're the, the, the little fruits of the... This, we don't really eat them here in the States, but they're, they're a, a fruit that, you know, starving peasants in Europe had to eat. I mean, I mean uh, uh, our, our forefathers had to eat. Right. Um, and... Um, they're they're good on their own, but if you get too much of a concentration of like when they're in bloom, they really smell kind of like cat pee. So in high quantities, they're unpleasant, but as a part of a complex, they're they're wonderful because they combine to add a little bit of bite or a little bit of a different note to to fruit flavors. So like when you when you next time or next time you you get a chance to and you bite into a a fruit, um, like say for example uh, a bite of mango. You're going to say, oh, mangoey, and that's like the fruity mango. But then if you stop and pay attention rather than scarfing it down, I, I ate like a brewer, so like my, most of my meals take me about three minutes and 30 seconds to consume, <laughs> yeah. um, including Thanksgiving, which is really bad for my stomach. Yeah, it is. Um, but uh, the, the, what you're going to notice, there's a lot, of, a lot more things going on there than just fruity. Um, you're going to get, you know, sort of the generic mango fruit, but then you're probably going to note some sort of sour citric character. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you're also going to get probably a little bit of black pepper and maybe a little bit of like this sort of alcohol burn character like you get from orange skins. And those are terpenes interacting with sulfur compounds or thiols interacting with esters to create this whole complex. I see. So that's what's really, really fun about that. But when you just combine the esters and the terpenes and the terpene alcohols, um, you, like there's a, there was a nice study done fairly recently, and I think uh, Stan Hieronymus referenced this in uh, the complex case of thiols. Is an article you can get online. It's basically looking at um, how a citrusy or fruity score might only be two out of five. All right. Um, using just the terpenes and the esters, which are traditionally classed as the fruity things, but when you throw in some of these these thiols. They just it just bumps it all up, and so I it more see. than doubles the potency of that of those aromatics. So these these are, thiols are, are a way to, way to look at thiols are they're, they're potentiators. And so just to back up for a second, so I can have my own kind of real real world example. When I used to describe certain lots of uh, Simcoe as very catty, it was something I was really sensitive to for a while. Now I've I've come to love Simcoe, by the way, but. Do you think that those that that was a high level of four MMP four MSP? 
causing 100%. that? One hundred percent. Okay. Yep. That's a that's a really big thing. I've learned one thing today so far. I like it. But you can also get other other characters in there that with other thiols, some of the thioesters that are a bit more onion and garlicky, and those will again those will potentiate the cat aromas. Okay. So it's a it's so it's it's a delicate balance. Right. And so that we, so we as as hop providers and and our growers as hop growers really try to provide the best situation to 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 make sure that we get the right balance of these compounds in the hops, and it is. You know, sometimes involves sacrificing a goat, um, dancing around the field naked at 4 a.m., you know. Um, There's a little voodoo involved. A little bit of a voodoo, yeah. But we're we're working on on codifying our SOPs for the voodoo practice, how we should say. All right. Um, All right. Some other ones we want to look at is um, 3-MHA, and that's uh, 3-MH acetate, basically. Yes. Pretty close. Okay. Pretty, pretty close. Looking for, <laughs> looking for pat approval there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that one's going to be a lot more tropical. That's guava and passion fruit. Um, and again, on its own, it's kind of lightly tropical. And actually, it smells a little bit to me. It smells a little bit like butyric acid. Um, it's and so guava used to me used to smell kind of not so nice. Uh, so same like papaya does too. Like I actually like eating it with lemon, but on its own, I, it makes me. It reminds me of vomit. Okay. Um, butyric acid basically, and I said acid. But when in an acidic environment with a bunch of lime and maybe some salt and pepper or something like that, it completely changes the character and is this wonderful tropical fruity joy. I it's see. the same sort of idea with these compounds. Is when you combine them, you get more than. You know, more than the sum of the parts. Just like spices and food. Exactly. They got to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And um, if you let them alone for a while to talk to each other, you might get some fights breaking out and Mm -hmm. you get some bitter and and, and, and sort of um, acerbic compounds coming out. But in general, you get some really nice, nice nice integrations. Indian food's a great example of this because it's very strong in the spice department. But any one of those spices could be very harsh on its own. Uh, but the combination turns into amazing curry or, or you name it. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, like uh, fenugreek is an example. is a good, great one for that from the Indian example. Um, it smells kind of like maple syrup, fake maple syrup. But actually, that's what they use to make fake maple, maple syrup. And on its own, it's actually quite bitter, but it smells sweet, so it's very confusing. Mm-hmm. But it lifts everything else and provides a real nice solid round base. Got for it. The food, so. Okay. Anyway, this is also incidentally why um, curry the next morning for breakfast is like the ideal hangover food. Because all the flavors have talked to each other, and it's just wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that may be just me, me. But anyway. Right. So another one is uh, 3-SH, which is 3-sulfonylhexanonol. Um, and that is what is... Um, You're getting better. I, I am getting better. It's also, yeah, it's also written, as it goes, right? It's also written down in front of me, so that helps. Oh. Um, well, plus, I'm watching his beer go down. And as the, as the beer goes down in his glass, he's getting better at the combos. I, so it's, it's like playing pool. Yeah. I have like a three-beer minimum right. and a six-beer maximum. So I'm... I, I, <laughs> I, I'm just in the zone. I'm pretty decent at, yeah. at like three beers. Uh, and, and like as and soon as beer like five is done, and then I'm like, hey, I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So 3SH um, is the compound that's responsible for driving, and it's not responsible for the aroma on its own, but it's responsible for driving the Sauvignon Blanc, Melanie, Gooseberry, tropical floral character that you get out of really nice New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs. Which is a amazing thing to taste in beer and wine oh it's it's, it's lovely it's, it's actually it's actually harder to, to pull out in beer because it's actually a fairly delicate character okay and the weight of barley behind it this, this is uh, so this is one of those compounds and trying to make a beer like that i think would be really good with the brute style the brute ipa style or yeah. a session style because there's not a lot of, of of malt backbone or a lot of other competing character behind it um and so that'll that'll show up really nicely and this is something to bear in mind so like uh, we had those wonderful strawberry sours at the rare barrel mm-hmm. um strawberry is actually really really difficult to, to get to pursue in most beer 
not in sour beer, interestingly enough, but in regular beer. And this is uh, we were talking about this earlier at lunch. It's a pH issue, and uh, so those those lighter characters like blueberry and strawberry, because strawberry and pineapple are, are virtual isomers of each other, um, and this three uh, SH, those all work together to create a really wonderful profile. Okay, but you need to be you need to provide them the space to shine. You know, you need to give them a stage on their own rather than giving, crowding them up with a bunch of spices and a bunch of, like, um, other esters and a big malt backbone flavor. What I like about this one, too, is that uh, it could give me the impression if it were if it were pronounced in a beer, this Sauvignon Blanc uh, flavor, uh, I would assume that they barrel-aged it, actually, that they put it in some kind of wine barrel. But you're telling me now they could even achieve that with just using hops. I, so I wouldn't actually say so. So I, I would typically go with an unoaked Sauvignon Blanc. Okay. Um, so and most Sauvignons, I'm sure I'm not, I'm not very familiar with many oaked ones um, or like like heavily oaked ones. They're they're, they're neutral barrels at, at best. But what it, it's more it's more of those real bright light top notes. It's very floral, okay. very just like when you open a really nice bottle of white wine, you're like. Ooh, this smells and tastes like spring and summer. Yeah, I see what you mean. It's, it's, it's a little different. And so two other ones, we're just going to bust through these pretty quickly, is uh, 3S4MP and 3S4MPA. Um, and 3S4MP is uh, the driver of grapefruit. And 3S4MPA is grapefruit and tropical, specifically passion fruit. And so those are all, so those last three compounds, the three sulfon hexan one all and 3S4MP and 3S4MPA, are, were all first identified in Sauvignon Blanc. And okay. then Jacques Gros at ABI did a bunch of work and uh, found those in a lot of hops in uh, in American varieties and in New Zealand varieties. So Nelson Sauvin, for example, actually does have these. So does Cascade and so does Amarillo, but it varies lot to lot. Okay. So this goes back to what I was saying about trying to, you know, the voodoo and the and the shepherding of the hops to, to make sure that these characters come out the way that we want. You're also teaching me right now the chemical compounds of some of my favorite things, because those three hops that you just mentioned has have always been some of my favorite. And Nelson, um, I find that one to be a little uh, hit or miss among brewers. Some people love it, some people don't. I've always loved it, and, and all of these characteristics that you're now describing to me are in those hops. I think this is actually a perfect time, thank you for that segue, mm-hmm. um, to talk about blindness and sensitivity. And uh, Tommy and I have noticed this before, like when we're doing sensory on, on hops, where we're, you know, we open up a bag and go, oh God, that's that's not good. And then come back, you know, five minutes later and smell it's like, oh, it actually smells pretty good. But then if we leave the room and come back, you know, half an hour later and smell it again, you're like, no, no, that's not good. Wow. So what happens is that you get really, really blind to sulfur compounds. And I've got a funny brewing story about this that I'll tell in a minute. But Tommy, what are some of the other things that we uh, we get blind to? I mean, <clears throat> the biggest thing with the sulfur compounds is that they're basically a whole order of magnitude more um, noticeable. You can detect them down to the low parts per trillion, whereas most of the other compounds we're looking at are usually in the parts per billion or parts per million range. Um, so, you know, if you're smelling a lot of it, it can really overwhelm you and, like Nick said, just make you blind to it, it almost it, instantaneously. It actually kind of numbs your senses to it, exactly. is what you're saying. So, okay. that, I mean, that smell didn't actually go away. You just lost track of it. So I always tell people when they're doing hop sensory or even beer sensory, if you think you smelled something, you probably did. You're probably not just making it up. It You probably just got blind to it and... Okay. It's gone. So if you can't find it again later, you you like to say, well, it doesn't mean it wasn't there. You should still write that down, for example. Yeah, still trust your first instincts, and you're probably... You probably did smell it. Okay. Always go with your gut on on sensory stuff. Like, the first impression, okay, good, bad, ugly, whatever. Take it. Take it. Okay. I mean, the nose is probably better for smelling, but... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> there we go. First one's out. I mean, Tommy's right. <laughs> he is, he is, you're not wrong, Tommy. You're not wrong. Yeah. Um, the uh, so I guess in, in in that case, that's a so so Pat. We were talking earlier about the, so the part per trillion range, which was some of these compounds or some of these styles. They they were like zero point five parts per trillion. So yeah, almost zero point one parts per trillion. So you're like that's the threshold level. So just a little tiny bit, you're gonna sense it. Which is really interesting is that these these compounds um, occupy less than one percent of 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 the hop oils, which is frequently less than one point five percent of the volume of the hop. But they're the defining character, so it's kind of crazy to pay attention to this stuff. So um, analyzing this is a it's a challenge because you have to have a whole bunch of different detectors. But the result is that you get some some really nice complexity out of it. So I'm um, going to change things up for yeah. you. If we're going to move on to esters, you think? Uh, yes. At this point, all right. We're going to take, we're going to do a two break show today. Okay. Just because I can. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk about esters. It's a good list here, and I just want to make sure that we have enough time to focus on that before we can move into how all these things can work in concert and, and some uh, specific hop examples. So hang in there. You're listening to the Hop and Brew School podcast, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Hop and Brew School podcast. Thanks for hanging out with us. And uh, today, of course, we were talking about uh, hop combos and, and how the whole is greater than the sum of the parts when, when dealing with the different uh, compounds found in hops. And we wanted to dive into esters this time, which uh, I think people feel that they're familiar with. But um, we're going to talk about the chemical makeup of some of these things. Indeed. Pat? Esters. Well, most of them derive from the fatty acids, and that's how they end up in the actual bract of the compa- bract of the hop cone. And some of the more known ones are the methyl geraniate, which is basically a geraniol with that's been esterified. So that's why it's actually kind of could be concerned in the terpene fraction as well, because it is like a almost the same as geraniol, just with a methyl group added on. Okay. And so, Pat, how does that happen again? So, um, esterification is driven, you know, you have to have fatty acids and... And an alcohol. So, you have methanol bonded to geraniol acetate, essentially. Yeah. Or geraniol. Geraniol. Yeah, sorry. sorry. Um, and that one... Uh, chemists are upset now. So. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> they, they're, they'll go back to their lab and... and, and Pipette with fury. That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and methyl geranate is typically like a, a fruity and waxy aromatic character um, with apple lift. And waxy is a really hard one for me to, to, to detect. And really, I only detect it when it's in really high levels and it tastes and smells kind of like wax. Like, like candle, candle wax. Like, yeah. Like if you like, had just like an unscented like candle. Like a totally neutral candle wax. So, so okay. not like any pencil dust shavings you get in some of the colored ones, but a completely yeah. neutral candle wax. Obviously not beeswax, um, but it'll smell kind of waxy. Okay. Um, and not in a bad way. It's, 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 it's an odd one. Okay. Yeah, I'd have a hard time picking that up too. All right. Next. Well, oh, go ahead. My, my next favorite one actually is because of the fact that it wasn't something I would have looked at or detected. Well, actually, I detected it on the GCMS, but I wouldn't have looked at it because it was so small and tiny. I actually have an olfactory report where people were actually smelling this one, so then it became of interest to me because it may have been a small, tiny blip on my GCMS, but it's important to the nose, so now I accept it. Yeah, okay. So this one's a 1-butanol, 3-methanol propanate, which kind of is a fruity odor. Some people have gotten peach off it. Tommy's actually the one that called it peach. So peach. that one's been a really neat new one that I found 
that I really was excited about. Yeah, I like that you mentioned that uh, it, it could show up uh, in really small quantities in your instruments, but if people are picking it up, we can't ignore it. It's important. Yeah, it makes it, puts it at the top of the... <laughs> Sure. Top of the level there. Okay. And I mean, that's what's really cool is that, again, I, I, I've said it before, is that the, uh, the best GCMS is the one on your face. You know, not wearing it, Tommy. Um, but uh, <laughs> just, you know, sticking your nose in things. And if you detect it, you know, trust, trust yourself. If you smell it, it's there. No matter what it reminds you of. But if you smell something, even if you can't identify it, then there's something going on there. And if you like it or you don't like it, that's what matters. So figure out where that's coming from and adjust accordingly. Okay. What's next? Uh, one that's a little more common is two methyl butyl isobutyrate, which is. <laughs> I'm just laughing because bam, bam, bam. because I'm looking at the notes and that word and Pat, I'm so glad you're here because <laughs> I would have butchered that. Say it again for me. Two methyl butyl isobutyrate. Okay, that's all one word, folks. Uh, and what does that give us? That's a, kind of a bananish character. It actually, people believe it to be derived from actually the alpha acids as degradation product, but it is pretty common to see. Okay. And your chromatograms are as a ester to be found. So, and again, I, I'm just I, I love learning about this in hops because uh, if if ever I'm sensing banana, uh, you know, I, I think like a lot of people, I blame yeast first, right? I go straight to yeast on that one. Well, that's what we're. And I'm going to get into those esters after these these hop derived ones. So these are all hop derived, and then the next set is going to be a little bit of uh, yeast derived stuff. Okay. And speak on to that because being a person who's behind the scenes that looks at data sometimes when i smell hops me knowing the compound ratios they have it affects what i actually sense because i see. think i sense banana all the time because i know this hop is supposed to have a lot of two methyl butyl isobutyrate even that- though it may not be there for everybody else around me, but for me, it's there. And because I know that you're hop. not doing a blind sensing. You, yeah. yeah. Especially if they gave me the variety that it's like instantaneous. I'm going to give you back what I know. Yeah. That makes sense. Our brain dictates uh, our senses in those ways. And that's okay. why um, to all of our Yakima Chief listeners, we need more of you in sensory and at the olfactory port, please. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What's next? Uh, methyl octanoate. That's a pretty prevalent one in hops, it seems. Even though we don't seem to really actually be able to smell it through the GCMS, so it becomes like it's high amounts, it appears in the hops, but people who are actually using the olfactory port are not smelling it. So you're like, do I really want, do I really care at this time for this compound, even though it's at such a high level in the hop itself? Okay. So you're more just kind of collecting data when you see that one. Yeah. Maybe it actually turns up in the beer, and maybe someone will actually catch it out of the beer, or it will act in synergy with other esters right and maybe it'll pick up so yeah we're doing a lot of statistic analysis of this stuff so i guess one of the questions that i have is that you know it's this is an ester so it's a formation it's formed of an uh, of methanol and a fatty acid and so what happens when because those esterification reactions are reversible in, in in complex so you can actually have something that starts out as an ester and then turns into its constituent components and vice versa they they can change over time depending on the conditions i see so is it possible that methyl octanoate could end up as octanoic acid oh yes i would say so which yes, is absolutely. isn't that the goaty sweaty yep that become a goaty smell to you and okay sometimes in hops you do actually find uh, octanoic acid and be my guess that it is actually just a breakdown of methyl octanoate right. by acid hydrolysis or mm-hmm. something like okay so it matters yeah, it does matter, and it's, so, it's, <laughs> so it matters. Yeah. And it's, it's, so that's the point, is that these may matter in a negative way, or they may matter in a positive way. Uh, what's really interesting is because these things are reversible, if you think about aged hops where the octanoate has broken down into octanoic acid, then you put those 
age tops in an environment that uh, becomes alcoholic and acidic and full of turbid wort, therefore many, many wort lipids, mm-hmm. what do you think happens? They start, so lambics, when you're using these old hops, like um, isovaleric acid, for example, that, that's a very common feature in, in very old uh, aged oxidized hops. Mm-hmm. You can end up with isovalerate, which actually has a more fruity character that, 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 that develops. And okay. so looking at uh, just the chemistry, not even, not even taking into account, you know, the, was it 471 flavor active components of Lambic? There's a very high probability that these compounds, these, these, these precursors are being changed into some really interesting aromatic stuff. And so there's a lot of work to be done. So it's, it's, yeah. it's I'm, I'm excited to, to start looking at it. And it keeps me busy in the job. That's, so that's right. great. Hey, yeah. dude. Pat, I think you're going to be fine, man. Yeah. You're, you're going to get to choose when you retire. The work isn't going to choose for you. That, you, know, you don't understand that the, uh, the, the lab is locked and controlled. Um, <laughs> and so just is to Pat. keep me in. Yeah, it's basically to keep me in. Yeah. It goes back to the lab, analyze the samples, or it gets the hose again. Yeah. I, I like that Pat's like out in the world for the first time right yes. now. I There's sunlight. Sun. Yeah, uh, yeah thank, I thank you that you sent me to California. So There you go. Yeah, you know. so I got to see some sun. Nick's looking out for you, man. Yeah. I'm trying. I think it's more because he wants to keep you around. Get a little vitamin D back in you and then yeah. back yeah, in the lab, man. I, having rickets would just be really bad for Pat. <laughs> um, All right. What's next on our list? Well, another close compound to octanoate is methyl heptanoate. Again, it's another one that's pretty high on the instrument, so I get a pretty good response back in every hop, but it doesn't seem to be detectable by people's noses and the old factory report. So, but again, it could, it can form heptanoic acid, which would become another cheesy odor to you, pretty close to the goatee. So, and so th- that's actually a really good thing is to, to, to mention. And thanks for that, Pat. Is the uh, looking at esters because they're very very aromatically important in beer. But in hops, a lot of them, uh, the, the, the hops that have high levels of esters already are the ones that tend to develop cheesy characters and oxidized characters pretty quickly. I see. Um, so, you know, there are certain ones that we, we recognize as being really, really high esters, and we have to treat those very, very carefully and process them very, very quickly because we want, we want to make sure that they don't start to go that path. But again, in the right matrix, those things can convert back into some of these really nice esters. And so, you know, looking at this um, going forward, we're going to try to develop a lot more data on this, is understanding what's the balance, what's the threshold. You know, even if you have a cheesy hop, if you're using it in the right situation, it might actually provide you a better result than um, a hop that might smell brilliant. I oh, see, that would be amazing, too. I can't imagine brewers coming in and going, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and take the cheesy one because I know it's going to turn into something good. You'd be surprised. Really? Oh, yeah. We've had some requests for like, oh, no, no, no I'm sorry. Uh, you've overaged these hops. They don't smell enough like uh, feet. Wow. It's like, what? Yeah. Tommy, you you have this experience too where, where a hop can, can almost be offensive when you smell it but turn out to be something wonderful? Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely a possibility, like Nick was saying, with um, the those bad flavors reconverting into flavors you actually want. And I think you see that a lot with Lambic beers and sours that do you, do, you pH. do you think it's exclusive <laughs> to those beers? Um, I'm not really sure. I okay. Think, yeah. In other words, I, I think, I think it, the low pH does help, but in other words, you don't have some major example of of a of a cheesy footy hop in a that turned out wonderful in a fresh pale ale or a fresh IPA. I don't personally. But yeah. Okay. Doesn't I, mean it's not there. I guess. I actually do really have, and it was actually with a kettle sour. Um, and so this this pretty much ruled out biotransformation in in, in, the, in this particular case, um, and it was a, a turbid one. But it was I uh, used some 
four and a half year old sriracha ace that had been open and i was like i might as well kind of tradition kind of traditional with it and chucked it in there because i wanted to get it still had a bit of a sriracha ace character to it Mm -hmm. um and what it ended up coming through was just fruit okay but that in a kettle sour it still had the ph to help it out correct okay it's the p it's the the key is esterification is going to involve fatty acids an acidic environment alcohol and you know a substrate of some kind so okay. all right what's next so we can get through these all right these next couple are going to be yeast derived and this goes back to what you were saying so one of the big banana ones uh, as you mentioned is isoamyl acetate and that is legit the one of the one of the fake banana flavors they use to make banana gum and all that stuff so it's just basically and it tastes it's actually it's actually the the the, the major flavor compound for one of the land race bananas that is now extinct because of various parasites and and, and diseases but it's what you know the tiny little red bananas smell and taste like they're just the the most banana-y banana ever that ever bananaed um okay and uh isoamyl acetate that's as you know those are the uh, that's one of the things that is formed by the pof positive yeasts and it's also formed by some of the stronger strains when they're fermenting at higher temperatures and at higher abvs so like 1272 so the american ale 2 yeast that will kick out a lot of isoamyl acetate if you give it enough juice meaning enough sugar mm-hmm. and enough of higher temperature and enough hot material you're going to get a lot of these fruit characters in there okay and the link between the formation of a lot of these yeast derived or fermentation derived esters and um sort of incoming i guess substrates to work on from hops or from other ingredients isn't fully understood but we know the chemistry enough about how that happens that we can make some pretty educated guesses okay um ethyl lactate's a really good one and that is pineapple and that's the one that you want some uh, lactic acid and some ethanol in, in the place for. And you're going to end up with, um, if you can get that to form, you're going to end up with a very strong pineapple character. Um, ethyl hexanoate is actually a sign, an indicator of yeast stress. Um, so, and it tastes like red delicious apples and aniseed. Aniseed at a low, about a 30 to 60% ratio, uh, 33 to 66% ratio to apple. Is that that licorice? Is that anise you're talking about? Or is it different? It's not quite licorice. Licorice okay. is a lot harsher and darker and deeper. Okay. Anise is the little seeds that are kind of licorice-y. Okay. Uh, they're, they're, they're same, it's the same compound, but it bound up with a bunch of others. And uh, you can smell that a lot in, in beers where they have been underpitched or the yeast is serially stressed. And in a small volume, it can actually add a pleasant character to beer, mm-hmm. which is why some people will intentionally underpitch some of their beers. But at high levels, it can be just overwhelming um and then the other one is ethyl butyrate and this is what's what's really interesting is that so butyric acid feet vomit baby vomit just disgustingness Mm -hmm. but ethyl butyrate is the ester and that is fruity and tropical fruity and its threshold is is quite low just like butyric acid but when it gets really really high it goes back to smelling kind of like way overripe fruit and vomit but at low levels it is a major contributor to overall fruity character and so if you have some fruity hops like you have some that have the uh one butanol three methyl propanoate peach um or uh, methyl geranate and you've got some three sf4 mpa which is the passion fruit and grapefruit combine those with something that has a yeast that's, that's a heavy ethyl butyrate producer and you're going to end up with like crazy fruit salad. So that's kind of the idea where we're going with this. All right, I love it. Um, I, it's interesting. I'm, you must have taken some uh, background knowledge just from food science. 
I mean, I've known for years, I, I hope most people do, that McDonald's, for example, manufactures the, the flavors that we taste, and, and they do it from some of these esters. I think it was, what's the book I read years ago about McDonald's taking over the world or something? But they were, you know, they described in a chapter about how, how food science, and they're able to just place some of these compounds on the French fries and on the hamburgers and on the food to accentuate them. Uh, I guess in McDonald's case, it's, they're not accentuating things like banana and fruit, but they are accentuating something. Mm-hmm. So... While I think that you're sort of on an island figuring out these hop compounds, Pat, there, there must be a body of work that even just comes from food science that helps you with these things. Yeah, I mean, just the general basics of chemistry for myself, and then just trying to research as much as you possibly can about what's known out there. Yeah. Kind of helps you bring it together as much as you possibly can. But, yeah, I mean, having all the compounds... Like, the way I'm analyzing them is trying to get every little exact compound that I possibly can and find them all. But I also need sensory and that body of work from, like, our sensory group. Right. So I can combine it with that knowledge. Otherwise, it means nothing. Right. <laughs> well, it means something to you, but <laughs> yeah. not to the rest of us. I mean, I like the numbers, <laughs> and I think it's cool that I can find all this, but if it right. doesn't really help then what does it do for anybody? <laughs> Absolutely. Then you are out of a job. You, yeah. you can go do that stuff on your own. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, well, one second, Justin, here. Because the, the interesting thing about that is that when you talk about food science and um, sort of cooking, um, as like so, so imagine trying to model what's going on in a pan making a curry, going back to the Indian thing. You've got... Oh, generally about, you know, 8 to 12 spice combinations, plus some vegetables, plus the water, plus some citrus, plus all these things and changing pHs and, and volatilization and all that stuff. That's a huge amount of stuff to, to model. Well, you have all that in the boil. Then you have fermentation and biotransformation. Right. Then you have 1,715 plus compounds from hops, however many from malt however many from the salts and ion, uh, changing ionic balance, and then what the yeast brought with it and what the yeast is exchanging with, with the environment. Trying to model that is profoundly different from, you know, doing, a, a, you know, the, the, the science of, of cooking. It's, it's not easy to model cooking recipes, and people typically don't unless they're do, focusing on something very, very sort of focused, like, say, hamburgers and french fries. Yeah. And if you're only focusing on that, then you can, you know, there's, there's not that much going on there. Sure. You, you can complicate as much as you want and make some wonderful things. Right. But on their own, you know, it's pretty much meat, bread, cheese, pickles, salt. You know, um, and so combining those things is a lot easier to sort of sort of play with. Yeah. I'm not food scientist. I'm not saying your job is easy. It's hard as hell. No, just um, describing the different complexities that brewers have to have to deal with. And in fact, that this is one of the. It's helping me understand more uh, in the history of the the Brewing Network shows. We've always some professional brewers will give us their recipes, and some won't. Mm-hmm. And the ones that do have always said, "You can have my recipe. It's fine. You're still not going to make the same beer. Nobody." Can can, can ever really makes the same beer and it's because of this you know myriad differences that happen the recipe's not the only thing all of those other conditions are what's going to matter too yeah i mean it's as, as as i've said as a professional brewer it's far more about process than it is about recipe yeah um you know the recipe might be you know some people say 10 percent. i'm gonna go with less than five percent of the importance wow. it's really how you do it what you track in your ingredient selection um and your management of the process and um you know in terms of other brewers and stuff uh, and what, what i loved about like you guys can you brew it show um is that it showed that you could make a beer that was sensorily identical to the source or the inspiration beer mm-hmm but use an entirely different process and recipe to get there. Yeah. The, the, the one that comes to mind is the Arrogant Bastard. 
uh, which we could never quite get right. You could never, no, you could never quite get right according to them, but you got pretty close to it enough that, that people wouldn't really be able to tell the difference. Yeah, that's true. And so, so that's that's kind of the thing is that using, you know, they're like, oh yeah, none of that stuff is in that recipe. But you know, you put two of them in front of you, and you're like, oh well, they taste kind of the same. Right. For so. for those of you who aren't familiar with that show, it is a great example. It's called Can You Brew It. It's on thebrewingnetwork.com, and our two hosts, uh, Jamil Zanishef and Tasty McDole would uh, try to clone uh, their favorite recipes or our listeners' favorite recipes. And they were criticized early on because the first half of the show would be a direct interview with the brewer where the brewer would give the exact recipe. And Jamil would probe him further for uh, what his water profile looked like, and he would probe him fur- further for what his fermentation looked like. And and listeners very early on criticized, like, well, of course you can brew it. You just interviewed the guy and got all the information. But I'll tell you what, the ratio of failures and successes was fairly even. Even with all of that information, they mm-hmm. could still, there's a, there was a scale issue, there's all these different compounds you're talking about. There's it's a different uh, process issue. Yeah, the lot of, of ingredients that came in was different than what the... So, uh, yeah, we quickly waved off that, that, that criticism because we found our, they found themselves failing anyway and then would have to go back and make different adjustments to try to get it right. So, great example. All right, here's what we'll do. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we're actually going to talk about... Uh, we're going to give you a whole bunch of uh, different hops that, compa- uh, that contain some of these uh, components we've been talking about and uh, give you some real-world examples. So hang in there. It's the Hop and Brew School podcast. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Hop and Brew School podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we have been going over all the different uh, hop combinations and the and the combos of their uh, chemical makeup. And now we're going to get into some some real world stuff here. And I think what we've got to do is give us a nice list of of hops that contain some of these uh, certain compounds in in higher amounts. That is the plan, okay. um, as well as looking at some combinations to try to drive out cert- to drive out to drive certain character in the beer. Okay, so um, just a quick two notes. Um, one of the things that I wanted to sort of highlight here is um, about the thiols. You know, these are fairly volatile compounds, so they're gonna they're gonna you know they're gonna come a lot from from dry hopping, and and maybe some of them might persist through. That's there's some more work to be done there. But you got to be real careful about um, contact with reactive metals after you've introduced the hops, because copper will strip out any of the uh, sort of the sulfonyl thiols, sulfonyl group thiols, and um, what what ends up happening is that they bind to the copper. Hmm. And uh, and will will we'll not make it into your ward. They won't stay there. Okay. So that's just a just a, an observation. You're talking specifically about brewing equipment. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you gotta be. You gotta. You gotta watch out for that. I mean, you, yeah. know, you gotta have the right equipment for the right job. Got it. Okay. Okay. So we were then talking about hop lists. Although there was a there was a blindness story that I think uh, is, is is the uh, Nick's Brewing Foibles uh, 103. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so Tommy, we talked about how uh, we had gotten blind to some characters, uh, some of the thio characters and some of the thio ester characters. I mean, the uh, sort of uh, old veg, um, you know, broccoli juice left out tonight for yeah um, aromas. Mm, yes, <laughs> um, and how when you open a bag, sometimes those will just volatilize off. So come back to it a few minutes later, and you can. You can usually smell that the, the house will be fine. But so, Tommy, you, you, you must have experienced sulfur blindness before. Yeah. Often. Uh, I mean, with hops, it, it has happened quite a bit. Um, you know, smelling some of the onion garlic flavors um, and aromas, they will tend to dissipate after your first initial smell. And 
um, having smelled over a thousand samples this year, that did happen a lot. Um, okay. And it kind of made me confused whether or not I was smelling it, but again, just kind of trusting myself. And right. Um, but it does happen quite a bit. I feel like you got benched for a little while. I would bench him. Like. No, no, he benched himself. <laughs> he did. And, that's, yeah. and so that's the thing is that you have to you have to recuse yourself. Right. Um, so, yeah. if it, so if you've got a cold, you can't do it. Okay. Um, also, interestingly enough, I found this anecdotally. I had shoulder surgery when I was at BrewDog, and uh, you know, I had these. Uh, they didn't give me any decent painkillers. They just gave me freaking like ibuprofen um but like a lot of it yeah the europeans um, don't know about good opioids oh no no they, they no the thing is they give them out over the counter it's a little scary oh i see uh, i don't actually like opioids they're nasty okay. uh but the uh the, what i found though is that ibuprofen made my nose completely numb and i've noticed this time and time again so i'll smell something take some ibuprofen and then like 20 minutes later can't smell it okay don't detect anything so it's you know just to be aware of that but um so there's also there's, there's also personal blindnesses so like i'm blind to um certain characters that are might described as multi-biscuity or a um like this one that's like grainy but mm-hmm. i'm hypersensitive to other things like thp um trihydro tetrahydropyridine yeah tommy for the win tommy for the win he comes in from behind um but uh tommy you're you're not sensitive to dms right no, almost not at all. Um, it kind of took having a um, an experience seeing a kettle boil with the lid still on um, to make me really experience it. Okay, um, so that's well, that's kinda, the, almost my threshold. It had to be in a really high concentration. <laughs> well, the entire brewery smelled yeah. like you know Frito Lay's and corn. Yeah, it was, it was impressive. Um, and Tommy's <laughs> and like, Tommy oh. was just hungry for lunch. No, Tommy's <laughs> like, oh hey, is that TMS? Yeah. I smell it. <laughs> it was actually really exciting because I had, almost hadn't smelled it before. It wow. Took, like, 15 times concentration to really nice. okay. detect it. Before. And everybody has these. T- these everybody things, has so. these blindnesses. Yeah. So, for example, Pat is extraordinarily susceptible to an as yet unidentified compound in melon. And it's not uh, cis-3-hexanol, which is what I thought it was. That's the fresh, green, grassy, melon rindy character. Mm-hmm. Melons basically suck. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, come on. Who doesn't love good melon? Melons. Um, it's just too, it's your kryptonite. It's too powerful. Yes. I had a, I had a, a slice of cantaloupe at breakfast the night, or morning before last, and uh, passed this down next to me. He's like, get that shit away from me. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, the, the brewing foible, uh, beyond our, our blindnesses and sensitivities and stuff, is the... Uh, so we had a beer, or it was actually a braggot, uh, that was, it's amazing braggot, but it involved a lot of rhubarb and a lot of honey. I mean, it was, you know, 49 point, it was 49% honey. So it was legally, we called a braggot, you couldn't do any more than that. But it had, um, a, oh God, it must have been two or three pallets of rhubarb in it, and it tasted amazing. Um, it was just crazy. But rhubarb is completely full of thiols, particularly 3MH. And it's also got a lot of sulfur in it because of the way they fertilize and the way they spray and stuff like that. So we rinsed it all off. We cleaned it. But even having it in the beer, you know, during fermentation, it was like, wow, man, Scott, are you just having eggs every day for breakfast or something? It was just, huh. it just smelled like H2S in the whole brewery. And then so we processed it. But it had been smelling like that way for like a week. So we processed it, centrifuged it, sent it to the bright tank. Great. All things good. Then um, we did it on a Friday, came back on Monday, and we're like, oh, man, that, that's, that's not good. That, that smells like rotten eggs. We're still there. Okay. We're still there. So we had to burp it and try to off-gas it. And so we did that. Special human being that I am, mm-hmm. I didn't have the off-gas pipe going out of the brewery. Oh, no. <laughs> so I was off-gassing into the brewery. Right. And at first we were like, oh, that smells terrible. And after about three or four minutes, everybody's like, oh, yeah, no, it's fine. It's probably okay now. We tasted it. Like, yeah, I can't smell anything. Oh, we yeah. were all completely blind to it. Sure. And we had to recall the entire batch oh, because no. I forgot to take into account 
the fact that you get blind to sulfur compounds, particularly H2S, very quickly. Okay. And this is why people stay married. <laughs> yeah. You get, blind, you get blind to eggy farts very, very quickly. <laughs> That's right. I mean, there is a, there's an evolutionary uh, makeup to this. Right? Oh, absolutely. It's like, it's, it's, you know, all of our sensitivities and blindnesses are evolutionary driven, okay. including the blindness to stinky farts. Right. Okay. All right. Let's give a list of hops. How about uh, some high terpene hops? You, Tommy doesn't have in front of him. All right, there we go. Oh, you left him. <laughs> I left him. I left him hanging. Yeah, I'll help you. I can. Yeah. All right. Well, straight, we, can, we can. straight from the GCMS. All right. Yeah. So, um, I'm just going off the Pat's data here, but um, some of the high terpene um, hops that we have specifically, um, Citra, um, is I think the highest completely, and then Equinot Pato, which is our new um, HBC 682, which just named back in August, I believe. Filling in for Alex. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very nice. Um, yeah, so that's another high one that's a super high alpha as well. So um, kind of a different use profile there, possibly. But what are the what are characteristics of that? I've never heard of that hop. Obviously, um, it's kind of got a orangey citrus. Um, okay, and a lot of spice cake kind of in the background there. So it's a very spicy, like deep dark spices, like um, clove, cinnamon, and then. Uh, or it, it, it's you know in really high concentrations, it smells kind of like Christmas cake. Interesting. Okay, you can have like a twenty percent alpha. Wow, <laughs> really? It's, it's it's yeah, it's awesome. Okay, pato. Um, and then I think the last one we had on the list was Centennial uh, and Sabro. And uh, Sabro. Yeah, and that's the uh, HBC four thirty eight. No, but uh, yeah, so those are all really high ester hops. And what's interesting is high terpene. Sorry, terpene. I'm sorry, my bad. <laughs> high terpene. I'm learning, guys, because yeah. I can now correct Nick. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Good thing we gave you the list. That's right. <laughs> oh God, yeah, because yeah, I clearly because I'm clearly reading the list. Um, um, but yeah, so those are the high terpene ones, okay. and um, which will then. Th- those are going to be those the, the sort of the straight terpenes that are going to drive a lot of the uh, th- those are very aromatic in the hop themselves but those are also going to be those some of those will persist in the beer um, and it's really nice but then you also get the next class which is the high terpene alcohol ones okay and those are the linalools geraniols and then the things that lead to citronellol and nerol okay so and these are kind of the lifters exactly okay and things that might uh evolve in uh, in the brewing process very much so okay and the king of these as pat has pointed out is laurel it has the absolute highest uh proportion of linalool and it also has one of the highest quantities of linalool so it's a very high oil and very high linalool heavy hop um and so it's just it'll it'll it just really contributes a great deal to any citrusy beer that you want to do. Citra, we know this as well. It's a that's one of its defining characteristics. Also on the on the first list of mm-hmm. high terpene, uh, citra is a high terpene alcohol. Okay, mm-hmm. Sabro again as well. What's interesting is you don't have Pato on this list, mm-hmm. so it doesn't have the, the, the doesn't have the native terpene alcohols, um, or doesn't have as, as high a level as the native terpene alcohols as, as as the others. I want to figure out what that means eventually. Excuse mm-hmm. me. We're going to figure out what that means eventually because, uh, yeah. um, but uh, when you look at some of the other com- or uh, other hops, what's interesting is that, um, you know, Centennial's on that list as well, but Crystal and Triumph are really, really high in there. And Crystal isn't a super high oil hop, okay, but it has a really high proportion of these terpene alcohols to it. So bang for buck for these particular compounds, if yeah. you're trying to make a complex, but you don't want to get too much other vegetable matter in there or too much other, other, other hoppy character in there, you know, you might want to try combining some of these things like a little touch of crystal or some centennial, which are, which have these, but maybe it may not be super expressive in other ways. Centennial is pretty expressive across the board, but crystal is actually pretty, it, it plays well with others. Okay. And so that's one of those ones you might want to combine to just bump up your, 
your liminal level without bumping up a lot of anything else. So for these, what kind of um, proportion would you normally use? Somewhere around like 15% as a lifter? Now that, see, this is this this goes into to later on, but I guess really what it is is what are you trying to achieve? So, so again, you're not only going to be getting just one of these compounds into your beer. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to get, you're going to get the entire thing that the hop, hop contributes. So, for example, Sabro is very flavor forward in pretty much always. Like it has, uh, it contributes pineapple, coconut, um, extremely high levels. It can contribute a little bit of dillness. Like sort of like the, it's that's a New Mexicanist. These, these are all New Mexicanist tra- uh, traits. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll contribute lots of lime, but you know between five and fifteen percent charge, it will lift all these other citrus hops and all these other hops up, just and tropical hops up way high. Okay, and so I, I actually with Sabro, um, I love the hop. Um, it's fantastic. You can make a wonderful single hop beer with it. But I really advocate combining it with some of the ones that have these other high tripping, high tripping alcohols, and all some of these other like uh, some of the thiols. But you're not certain. Uh, back to Tommy's question, in like what percentage to combine them? Oh no, no. So Sabro, I would so like so one of my favorite beers is a Sabro Simcoe Cascade and Equinot, mm-hmm. and Sabro is like five percent of that charge. And when you know during fermentation, all you smell is Sabro, and then during dry hop. You know, you 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 don't. The sabro doesn't take over. You can detect it in the background, but everything else is just blowing up in your face. And is that Tommy? Is that your experience too? Even even with some other like Crystal was one that you mentioned would be a great bang for your buck. Are, are you finding in the in the five to six percent range? Or yeah, I mean, I think sabro is the most expressive on that list. Okay, um, like next, I've had a five percent sabro beer that was still dominatingly sabro. So, Interesting. Okay. Um, but others, you might be able to go up to 15 or 20. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you were doing like a laurel with citra, I think that's a good combination where if you did a 20, 80 or something like that, or add something else in there as well. Okay. Because um, laurel by itself is still a great hop, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, I think it's kind of underutilized. And that's that's kind of when you get to the, the thiol and the sulfonyl thiols. Like if you're trying to elevate either um, tropical fruit or citrus, so laurel has all of the building blocks. Laurel and citrus have all of these massive building blocks for, for citrus beers, but they may not have enough of the high thiol or sulfonyl thiols to, to, to kick them up that notch. So chuck in some Cascade, chuck in some Equinot, chuck in some Mosaic as a lifter to contribute to those, and it's just going to go boom. And it's going to just kick it up a notch. And just looking at my notes here, uh, I just I think it's worth pointing out that so far of the of the list we've talked about, high terpene, high terpene alcohol, and now you just mentioned high thiol and uh, sulfonyl thiol. Citra is on every one of these so far. Citra is actually on all of these so far. So well, we haven't even gotten to the last one yet. Mm-hmm. So now you just gave it away that Citra is going to make it on all of them, Nick. I was building up some anticipation. It was a mystery. Uh, my big bang was going to be look at citrus on all of them. And what do you do? You run it over like a freight train. I'm sorry, Justin. Please forgive me. It's <laughs> the first time you've gotten scolded on the podcast, too. All right. So on today's show, we've got our first quote, our first quotable quote, and Nick's first scolding. Oh, feels bad. Uh, okay. But citrus is high thiol and sulfonyl thiol. Uh, Amarillo. Yep, um, and that's a. What's interesting is that Amarillo and Citra both have that um, pretty uh, distinct, earthy, dusty character in the background, um, and you know, depending on on the grower, depending on the region, mm-hmm. that'll express more or less. Okay, um, and that's described as that. Uh, I think that's a three MH where it's a rhubarb slash citrus character, and it's because they're very very strongly associated with the three MHA, which is also a citrus character. But that rhubarb character is when you you know when you when you have rhubarb. There is a bizarre rhubarbiness to it, but there's also a very strong earthy component to that to that 
mix, mix, mix of compounds. Okay. Um, and uh, I've had batches of citra where people are like, oh, my God, the citra just smells super earthy. I'm like, yeah, no, that's, that's actually part of the variety. That's within spec. It's just a different expression of that variety. I see. And it's, it's, it is actually within spec. It has the right balance. It has the right alpha balance. It has the right oil balance. It's just that it's more towards earthy than, than, towards, uh, than towards citrus. Okay. But if you combine that with some other more citrusy lots of hit citra or more citrusy lots of, of like laurel. That sounds great. It's going to go boof and get real boof is the, is the, is the lifting hand for those of you not watching the video. So, and um, boof is also the scientific term for, for, for le bouffage, which is uh, the way that you increase the uh, volumetric volume of a hot air balloon uh, with hot go. words. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it basically, it'll just lift those things up. Okay. Um, what else is on the high thiol and sulfonyl thiol list? Equinot. Yeah, and this is another one that's pretty much everywhere. Okay. And uh, this kind of goes back to what I was talking about uh, multiple times is how Equinot was kind of me until it grew up and then got through its awkward teenage phase and now is just banging. Mm. It's just expressive in every which way. Okay. Another thing with Equinot, it is one of those hops that have a lot of oil content so that's why you see it on a lot of this list i see yeah and, and by the way some of the most popular hops are on all of these lists right yeah so yeah so it really just stands out yeah now you figure it out what people have already told us and now we're finding the data supports that i understand okay that <laughs> so makes that, sense yeah so when yeah. we're breaking it down looking at it saying oh so yeah, this I, is why people like it right so you guys kind of gave me a jump start yeah i already knew what to look for worked backwards from yeah. what brewers were liking uh, consumers were liking yeah and now so, you're telling us why yeah so thank you yeah <laughs> it's a good team there's some teamwork we got going yeah. on here <laughs> you make beer that we like to drink and we will use that to determine what hops to give you right yeah. Just very kidding. symbiotic all right and then our uh, uh our last group here uh would be high ester hops right oh and look citra's on that list citra's on <laughs> wow what a surprise <laughs> Uh, uh, sorry, guys. That's it. Tommy, you're in. Nick's out. <laughs> uh, no, here we go. Uh, what are yeah? What are some of the hops we can find uh, in the high ester category? Well, the king of them is again Equinot or Equinot mm -hmm. because he's got the high oil content, and in this list with the esters, he's actually the top. Okay. He has the most of all of them, so he's the king. Got it. And I believe that's a she. Okay. Is it? All right. I believe they're, they're all she's. she's. They're all she's. All right. They're all. Yeah, they are. Right. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. You can't blame Pat. It, he's stuck in the lab. He's, yeah. he's, he's gender blind. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. The thing has to be. That's right. What's next? Citra, of course. Yeah. Because everybody knew that was coming. Uh huh. And then Laurel again. Okay. And then, of course, you got Simcoe, Centennial, and Chinook finally makes it to the list. What do you know? Right. There there it is. <laughs> Actually, Chinook should be on the uh, high Yeah, he's high thigh all, too. Yeah. yeah so. um, I'm sorry. You didn't proofread my list. <laughs> <laughs> there was a burger. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's what happens when you make it during lunch. That's right. Sorry. <laughs> um, I woke up late. Um, all right. All right. And, and let me just uh, say this. What I'll do is post uh, this these lists in our show notes. Uh, so you can come back and, and take a look at these things if you're ever you know, follow along with the show and, and sit down and, and plan your beer uh, based on some of the things we've talked about. And we do have enough time uh, to give a case example here. Yeah, and so actually going forward, more than just posting the show notes, one of the things that um, we're going to try to work on is as we get more data, we don't have uh, you know a total long-running series yet. We, we, are, we are still compiling it. Mm -hmm. Is I'd like to be able to provide... Um, 
sort of, you know, remember the old hop oil chart? Yes. We're going to do a further further breakdown of that. And so major components and minor components. And so that, that we'll be able to uh, allow brewers to, or give brewers the, the, the tools to really combine things in a cool way. Great. But that's coming in a while. Um, quickly on the high ester ones, what's really interesting, and Pat, you clued me into this, is that based on, on your knowledge of chemistry and, uh, and the analysis that you do, the esters are mostly resident in the Bract fraction, right? Yes. And so what's interesting about that is that if you think back to trying to make beers with only extract or the descriptions of some people saying, if I just make only a cryo double IPA, it seems to be missing something. Mm. And what's interesting is it, it might be that these, it might be these esters. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to dig into that some more. Okay. Um, but what's, what's really lovely about it is that you can then control it better. And so if you want to bump up your ester profile, stick in something that's got a little bit more leaf material, got it. try to balance it out. Um, the other thing we've noticed is that the uh, high ester profiles um, are also the things um, that are the ones that can go kind of off pretty quick. Kind of get cheesy. Okay. So you have to be real careful about how you store these high ester varieties. So you want to keep them cold as heck and anoxic. So keep them in the package as much as possible. If you have an open bag, you know, squeeze all the air out of it. Fill it full of CO2, squeeze all it all again, fill it full of CO2, squeeze mm. it all again. Like get as much air of that as you possibly can. Okay. And make sure that that CO2 is coming in at the very bottom of the pellet so you're driving everything out. And, and then vacuum seal it. And then by cold, am I putting them in my fridge or my freezer if I'm freezer. a home brewer? In my freezer. Freezer. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I ideally minus, uh, minus 80 <laughs> C. But most people don't have those, right? Um, so most big chest Just freezers in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most big chest freezers will go down below uh, minus twenty or minus forty. Okay, so you're you're okay. Um, but that's I mean that's one of the things like so you look at things like uh, Centennial, very high ester hop and has very very lovely characteristics. Mm. But if you don't store it right, it can go really quite cheesy quite quickly. Okay. And so what's interesting is that we're looking at it and going, huh? Well, we've got some of this stuff as bracked. Let's see if we can sort of uh, get that stuff into some lambics and see what happens. Because I think that would be really cool to see. Okay. Because if, 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 if we're right about this, you know, then these things could be a source of major uh, fruit-forward flavors from these oxidized esters. Got it. Or degraded esters. And we're not going to use strawberries no more? Uh-oh. <laughs> no, I want to eat the strawberries with balsamic <laughs> yeah. and uh, drink the beer with the hops. All right. Tommy, this is something where I think we can talk about. Actually, this is probably a good segue into that. Um, the beer that uh, so there's a couple of beers we had with um, uh, some of the the noble blends we had like the uh, Independence Blend mm-hmm. that uh, has picked up some traction with some some people because uh, it delivers a really apparently quite fruity character. Yeah, um, well, actually, we kind of had a little bit of an issue with it. Um, brewed the beer, and so um, I think it was with the Independence Blend, which mm-hmm. is. Um, 20% whole cone hops, and then the rest is an American Noble blend. Um, so it's kind of a in-between type of blend, but um, I think we were targeting some kind of American Pilsner type of style. Um, it's a lower alpha and... A little bit more of, fruity and more assertive than yeah. normal. Um, and we packaged it into a keg and started carbonating it. And me and Nick tasted it, and it frankly was not that great. Kind of had that's like an a, understatement. <laughs> okay, we thought it I'm was trying to be nice. No, no, but let's, let's be honest here because oh, yeah. it started out. We were going, "Holy crap! This is oxidized. It smells like it had been, you know, f- packaged with oxygen. It smelled like it had, you know, it, it had this weird. It wasn't quite diacetyl. It was this other character. It definitely had isovaleric acid mm-hmm. in it. Uh, it was just full of weirdness. Wow. Yeah, it was frankly not a great beer, but 
whatever we left it on the co2 let it carbonate fully and let it rest for another week or two it wasn't even um, a week or two it was just a couple of days yeah and it totally cleared up and it was really great pineapple tropical flavor it was really surprising and so these are some of these uh, these changes that happen uh, that, that Pat's teaching me about in whether in fermentation or, or post fermentation they could be happening still right yeah yeah and bringing out better quality could just be the pH because after fermentation your pH drops so right and, and, and with the addition with yeah. CO, of CO two you're going to add carbonic acid which yeah. is going to drop it further so this is interesting too again uh, through the history of our show when we've been teaching home brewers here on the brewing network. Uh, Jamil and, and Doc and, and some of our cast have, have always told our homebrewers, don't throw the beer out yet. Just wait, 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 wait. Like there's a, there, obviously there's a point where <laughs> you know that you've failed. But yeah, they always need the keg. Uh, but yeah, but they always said, yeah, just wait. And, and, and oftentimes the, the beers have, have, have turned out better. But we were never talking about the chemical uh, process that was happening. We were just saying, we don't know, beer gets better sometimes. Just wait. <laughs> right. And so we're trying to figure out what the voodoo is. Right, right. Okay. So, I mean, what's interesting about about that one is that, you know, we wanted a little bit of fruit, but we didn't specifically target pineapple. And actually, the 20% of leaf that's in that one is actually Simcoe, which is not something I would ever associate with pineapple. Pine, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. And sort of generic fruitiness, yes, but not pineapple. Right. Um, and the, in concert with the other the other noble varieties, um, so the, or the, the noble fractions of the other varieties, um, what seems to be coming out is this very expressive very distinct ethyl lactate pineapple and some some you know ethyl butyrate tropical fruit character and uh we've seen this not only in the beer that tommy made but also in the commercial brewers brews of this so the one um in nashville um that we had for cbc you talking about the cascadian no no the one that the 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 lovely folks who hosted us uh, in nashville um for the meeting Oh yeah, at uh, tailgate. Yeah, at tailgate. Um, they made a beer with the the, the independence plan. It was it was it was really good. Okay, it was really distinctly pineapple. And this is this has shown up again and again. So um, some other people have, have have experienced it, and it's uh it's really interesting. So this kind of gives weight to you know I was kind of like nah, Pat, the esters have got to be in the uh, in the lupulin fraction, but apparently may that may not be true. Interesting. But not all of them. So it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting to see. All right, lots to learn here, folks. How about a, a few key points we could wrap up this episode and let people know what they should take away? All right. Well, one quick, I'm going to give one quick case example because I want to, to, to jump in there. Another one, which is the, uh, we've ta- I mentioned it before, which is Chinook is a donor of 3MH and 4MMP. Okay. So those are the two um, super uh, tropical and super uh, citrusy drivers. Or 3, 3MHA is the citrusy driver, excuse me. But you wouldn't, I would never describe Chinook as a, as a citrusy hop. Okay. It's real kind of piney and sometimes kind of, kind of fruity, but, but mostly just big, bold, and dank. Yeah, I think people would agree. in concert with Laurel, Super High Linalool, Sabru, an even match of Linalool and Geraniol, and Brewer's Gold, which is really high Geraniol, you should end up with a crazy citrus bomb. Really? So, you know, I would encourage people to try this. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it should be pretty cool. Homebrewers out there, I want you to give this a shot, and then uh, maybe you can send us your beer. I'd be interested to try it. Yeah, I mean, and... Uh, uh oh, you 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 open the floodgates, dude. <laughs> well, you uh, I'll tell you at the end of the show too, but you can email me at hopsandbrewschool at thebrewingnetwork dot com, and uh, if you've done this exact experiment, um, we'll maybe pick a couple. 
Ah, okay. Um, and so just as a quick note, again, netrol and, or netrol, nerol and citronellol are not found in significant quantities in hops on their own usually, but they're really important in the final beer, and that's the thing that some will evolve from some of these precursor compounds, these precursor molecules. And uh, with the high amounts of, of these compounds and thiols, you should have a pretty dang citrusy beer. All right. And going back through the notes, that we, or what, we, what we said about the other compounds, you can do the same thing for tropical. All right. So here we go. Understand what drives aromatics in hops. We're helping you do that here today, and I'll, I'll put some of these notes in our show notes so you can go back and check it out. Um, understand which hops have those in high proportion and and, and in what absolute levels they have, yep. uh, which, again, we'll give you a little list. Um, and you can also go to yakimachief.com and look these things up, too, um, get information about different hops. Uh, we'll try to uh, fill out more and more information here on the show as we can. Um, and then, as as Nick was just suggesting, uh, practice combining the hops uh, that have these in good proportion uh, to create the propo- uh, the profile you want. And uh, of course, keeping in mind, like we've been talking about, some things might change. Mm-hmm. Some things might get lifted in good ways. Uh, some not so much. Yeah, and that's you just you know be wary of adding too high of a ratio of hops that contain the aromatics that you don't want okay. to the combo. If you're doing if you're adding a lifter, like if you if there's something that you're you're not super super hot on. Don't add too much of that, because even though it might lift everything else up, it's going to add that to your beer. Got it. And the other compounds and the other hops might interact with that to create something nasty or something beautiful. So basically play. Yeah. But keep notes. So basically, balance in all things hopheads, except taking data. <laughs> Rigorous data collection and analysis. Come on, guys. you you got you to take notes. It's going to be a theme for this podcast, I can tell. Uh, always collect data and, uh, and a lot of it. Dang straight. All right. Well, I want to thank Pat and Tommy for coming down from, from Yakima to join these couple shows we did. I appreciate it, guys. It was Thanks great. Us. I'm nice telling you, you had, you, you, you had a, a task ahead of you to teach me something, and I think you did. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited. I mean, I, if I had to, if I had to tell like you, if I, Pat, if I had to tell you how many times I had to take chemistry in high school just to graduate, you'd, you'd, be, you'd be shocked. <laughs> so I appreciate all the help. No um, problem. Well, we've got a lot more coming up in future episodes, so, so stay with us. And thanks for joining us here on the Hop and Brew School podcast. Nick, you're doing a great job. I'm, I'm having fun, man. Thank you. It's a, quite an honor to be here after... 15 years <laughs> of listening yeah, well yeah I missed a couple of years there here and there but in general yeah yeah well you made, my, you made my drives much better i appreciate that glad we could do it and i'm happy to be working with you uh once like i said you can email us at hop and brew school at the brewing network.com send your feedback questions show ideas we'll take it all there uh go to yakimachief.com to visit yakima chief hops and uh they've got different tools that you can use to look up your uh, your lots and they've got a an online marketplace coming up soon so you might want to go enter your email address there so you can get updates on that and be the first to know of when you can order hops direct find this podcast on itunes and google play tell all your friends about it if they're also hop heads you can also check it all out on the brewing network.com where we put the show notes and uh heck i might even put a picture of nick up there one of these days oh god let's see what you're dealing with here <laughs> oh jeez, you hit me one thing in my nose <laughs> all right everybody we'll see you next time on the hop and brew uh It's a long show, Nick. I was so close to a perfect ending. We'll see you next time on the Hop and Brew School podcast.